may leave at this time to attend Children's Church. morning to you, brothers and sisters. Grateful to see you today. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's Cody and I'm the senior pastor. And you're going to need your Bible today. And so would you go ahead and open up to the book of Joshua. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And you'll find our passage on page 188 in that pew Bible. Uh, Bothwells, we're grateful for you. Thank you for your life of ministry. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to support you and to celebrate with you. Thank you that the hero of your story is Jesus Christ. Uh, your life and your ministry are a source of joy to us. What a privilege God's given South Shore Baptist Church to get to walk alongside you guys these many, many years. Pastor Workna, to you and your wife, we greet you. We're grateful to have you worship with us today. Thank you for your labor for the kingdom. You have a God-sized job in front of you. If only you were in charge of New England, it would still be a God-sized job. But New England, Canada, and Africa, brother and sister, uh, we're grateful for your trust and your work in the name of the Lord. Thank you. In church, I hope to see you next weekend for our missions conference, as Steve already said. Um, it's a big moment in the life of our church. And if you have kids, I especially want to challenge you to be present with us on Saturday morning. Rearrange your schedule, make it a priority for your family, and next Saturday, you and your kids join us for this big moment in the life of our church. Joshua chapter 7, all of chapter 7 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. I want to tell you real quick about my mom's dog. Uh, she has a dog named Dan, and Dan is a pit bull. Dan is massive. He's huge. His head is the size of this podium. He's just, he is a, an enormous and intimidating looking dog, uh, but he is a big, sweet, cuddly teddy bear. Uh, super sweet, super skittish. Uh, he looks intimidating, but he's just a big teddy bear. Great with kids, great with the grandkids. Uh, a really sweet, sweet dog. Well, once upon a time, my mom took Dan and some of the grandkids out to visit a friend's farm. And they were having a good time, and Dan was running amok doing whatever dogs do on the farm. And then Dan and the grandkids walked over by the horse pen, and one of the horses startled in the direction of the kids. And Dan went into protector mode, and he attacked the horse. It was all they could do to get Dan off of the horse's neck, but they did. And so when you go, and the horse was fine, and Dan was fine, and everyone was fine, but that moment was really intense. And so when you go to Blackwell, Oklahoma, and meet my mom, and you meet Dan for the first time, you will pet him, and you will talk baby talk to him, and you will think, what a sweet, silly, snuggly, horse-eating dog is right here in front of me. Uh, he is both wonderful and terrifying all at the same time. And in this silly little example, we get a tiny, tiny glimpse into the character of our God, God who is loving and compassionate and kind and patient. And we saw that last week in Joshua chapter 6, didn't we? God is a champion who gives victory to his people. But in Joshua chapter 7 today, we're going to learn about God's wrath on sin and it's terrifying. He is wonderful. He is terrifying all at the same time. 
And the reason God's wrath is terrifying is because it is poured out on sinful people. And brothers and sisters, we have to see this part of God. We cannot simply settle for God as we like for Him to be. We must know both His love and His judgment, His compassion and His terror. And we have to know this because this deals directly with our sin. Joshua 7, as much as it is about God's wrath, is more so about us and our sin. We need to know what God's feelings about our sin are like, and we need to know what His rescue is like. Now, the message of Joshua 7 is not something we're going to hear beyond these walls. When you step out into that other sanctuary, uh, you're going to hear that you are not sinful. God is not a God of wrath. You are perfect just as you are. God will not judge you. He will only celebrate you. And there are, there are many people that follow that sort of God, a God that's shaped by cultural desires. It's a God made in our image. But the God of the Bible is not like the God of our culture. The God of our Bible loves you, yes, but our God also judges sin. And in Joshua chapter 7, we're going to see what happens if there's no rescue from sin. What if you have to face the full, unfettered wrath of God for your rebellion against Him. And in Joshua 7, we're going to see what happens when sinful people experience the wrath of a just and holy God. This is a hard passage. So a couple of things that might help you as we go through this. One is, uh, we talked last week a bit about how we make sense of the brutality we find in Joshua 6, Joshua 7, it's going to be there in Joshua 8, it's in different places in the passage. I provided for you an excerpt of an article last week, you remember it was on the back of the bulletin last week, uh, that talks about this a bit, and what I've done for you this week is we've actually made copies of the full article, and there's not enough for everybody, but you can find it out on the welcome desk, especially if you're visiting with us, if you're new here, maybe you're new to the Bible. You're going to be surprised, I think, at the story we study this morning. How do we make sense of it? Well, this, is a, this article is one resource that can help you. Here's the other thing that will be helpful for you this morning. Our destination is hope. Today, in this time together, our destination is hope. That's where I'm taking you. We've got to go through a lot of trouble before we get to that hope. But that's where we're going. So at the places where the story feels especially heavy or especially troubling, I want you to keep in mind we're going to land at hope this morning, okay? There's a couple of specific people I, I, I hope to reach today. One is Mr. Self-Righteous, who would hear a message about sin and God's wrath and think, I know some people that need to hear this. This is about you. The other person I, I hope to reach is... Mrs. Crushed by Guilt, who, who's going to hear this story and think, God must hate me and there's no hope for me. There is hope for you. There's hope for Mr. Self-Righteous. There's hope for those crushed by guilt. There's hope for all of us in Christ. That's where Joshua 7 is going to take us this morning. We're going to see God's wrath. This story 
shares with us three characteristics of God's wrath. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 1. You'll remember we just saw the walls of Jericho crumble. Uh, Jericho was given to Joshua and the Israelites. And here we are in the aftermath of that. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all our people there. So about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. O Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies, when the Canaanites... And all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out your name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? The Lord then said to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they will have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. Go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are things that are set apart among you, Israel, You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. The one who is caught with the things set apart must be burned, along with everything he has, because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. Joshua got up early the next morning. He had Israel come forward, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was selected. He had the clans of Judah come forward, and the Zerahite clan was selected. He had the Zerahite clan come forward by heads of families, and Zabdi was selected. He then had Zabdi's family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was selected. So Joshua said to Achan, my son, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. Achan replied to Joshua, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. 
When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver, and a bar of gold weighing a, a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself, they are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. So Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent, and there was the cloak concealed in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out in the Lord's presence. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over them a large pile of rocks that remains still today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore that place is called the Valley of Achor still today. Let's sit in that for just a moment. The preacher's temptation here is to sprint to comfort. But let's sit in it. What's the primary emotion that you feel upon reading chapter 7? Could be any number of things. I'm not saying there's one that's right or one that's wrong. Surprise. Shock. Confusion, fear, not celebration. That's not what comes out of Joshua 7. Not, not joy, not, not the victory cries of chapter 6, but here at the end of chapter 7, you know, we, we see God unleash his wrath on sin, and it is terrifying to behold. It's a difficult passage because here we see God's wrath and it teaches us these three characteristics about that wrath. Let me share with you what they are. The first is this, God's wrath is just. It is fair. When we talk about God's judgment on sin, His wrath on sin, it's a wrath that is fair, it is deserved, it is just. Our story opens with Achan. We're introduced to him in verse 1. The story is told in such a masterful way. It's written in a masterful way. You have information starting in verse 1 that Joshua does not. You know what's happened. Just from the summary of verse 1. Things that should not have been taken from Jericho were taken. And because of that, the Lord's anger burns against Israel. And then the events begin to unfold and Achan is identified as the culprit. And the question you would ask at the end of chapter 7 is, did Achan deserve the punishment he received? And the answer to that question depends on whose standards you're judging by. If you are judging Achan by the standards of the world, then no, absolutely not. He didn't deserve the judgment he received. Punishment, sure. Slap on the wrist, sure. Confiscating his goods, maybe some sort of other penalty, sure. But this, no. By the world's standards, by many of our standards, we would say, no, this was not proper. But let's look at it through the eyes of a holy God. What is Achan's sin specifically? What does he do? Well, he articulates it for us in verse 21. 
Look at it with me, the words of Achan in verse 21. He said, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver, and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and took them. So Achan names his sin properly. He coveted and he took. Coveting is not a sin that we talk about much these days. When I just said Achan coveted, nobody gasped. No one in this room has ever been shocked by the sin of coveting, which says how little we understand about this sin. Coveting is the desire to have something or someone that is not yours. It's the desire that precedes the taking. Coveting is insidious because in our misplaced desire, we are rebelling against God. It's not about just simply getting stuff. It is about rejecting God. When we lust after that which is not ours, we have rejected what God has provided. We're craving what God has given someone else. We're acting as our own God, using our own power to get what we crave. The, the command to not covet is the last of the Ten Commandments. I mean, it makes the top ten of God. When He's handing His law to His people, He is deeply concerned about the things they crave and what they will do to their relationship with Him. Let me share with you again this quote from Kevin DeYoung about the place of coveting in the Ten Commandments. He said this, he said, It can seem strange that the Ten Commandments starts with such lofty ideals, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, and ends with a prosaic whimper. Stop looking at that donkey. But do you see how the two are connected? God is saying, I'm the only God you need. Don't turn to Baal. Don't turn to statues and don't turn to animals or friends or abilities either. Let nothing else capture your gaze and affections ahead of me. Achan was not a poor man. He had oxen and donkeys and sheep. Not only that, he was rich in his experience of God. He had witnessed the amazing, mighty acts of God. He had eaten God's miracle manna day after day in the wilderness. He crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. He saw the walls of Jericho crumble. Achan had all the world's goods. He had all of God, and yet he didn't have enough. He was a greedy man. He coveted and he took. Did he understand how serious this sin was? Did he understand the consequences of his actions ahead of time? Maybe he just he didn't know. Maybe he didn't realize this was such a big deal. But this is certainly not the case. He absolutely knew what he was doing was wrong. The fact that he hid those things that he took in his tent tell us that he's trying to hide this sin. He knows it's wrong. But he knows it's wrong also because he had received an explicit warning just before the taking. Back in chapter 6, right before the walls of Jericho crumbled, Joshua gave this word of warning to all the soldiers present there. Here's what Achan heard from Joshua in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Joshua said, The city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. But keep yourselves from the things set apart, or you'll be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and gold, the articles of bronze and iron, are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. 
So all of Israel was warned. Achan was warned. He knew he was defying God, and he knew the consequences would be severe. But one question of justice still remains. What about his family? Is it fair that they met the same fate as Achan? And once again, if we look through 21st century eyes, we're going to say, no, this was not fair. But we have to read this story through the lens of Israel's covenant arrangement with God. You see, in our experience of our new covenant through Christ, we enjoy direct mediation to God, individual to God through Jesus Christ. But under the old covenant, circumcised males stood as the covenant leads of their families. And in this arrangement, blessing and cursing came through the respective obedience or disobedience of the family heads. Therefore, when Achan sinned, he brought his family under the wrath of God. In his obedience, he would bring them into blessing, but in his sin, he brought them into the wrath of God. Still, many people would push back and say this is problematic no matter how you try to explain it. But I would challenge you this way. Our problem is not with God. Our problem is with us. We have such a tame view of sin. We have no understanding of sin's truly contagious power. The problem isn't that God is so vicious. It's that we are so apathetic about the sin that damns souls to hell. The problem is with us, not with God. And so you might sit there and say, man, I don't like this God of the Old Testament, a God who's so mean and so angry, but this is, again, where you're mistaken. There is not a difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. The God who judged Achan is the God who will judge you. Romans 6.23 tells us clearly that the wages of sin is death. The same wage for Achan is the same for you and I today. Now, there are some states in our country uh, where there are certain crimes that rise to the level of the death penalty. Not all crimes are deserving of the death penalty or of capital punishment because not all crimes are of the same degree of harm to others. But God's court is so very different. All sin is a capital offense. All rebellion against the most holy God is deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 1.18, we're told that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people, that people are without excuse. And then in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, is this stark diagnosis of all humanity, there is no one righteous, not even one. Did Achan deserve God's wrath? Do any of us deserve God's wrath? And the clear testimony of the Scripture is that we are all dead in our sin. God's wrath on sin is just. We are not fair. We have sinned against the Lord our God. His judgment is fair. There's a second characteristic of God's wrath on display in this story. Not only is God's wrath just, but God's wrath is terrifying. God's wrath is terrifying. 
Achan's punishment is just, it's horrible to look at. Achan, his family, his livestock, their possessions, they all meet with this most severe punishment. They're stoned to death by the people of Israel, and then they are burned, and their execution afterwards, what's, what remains is, is covered up by a large pile of rocks. We're told in verse 26 that that place is called the Valley of Achor. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, it'll tell you that the word Achor means trouble. It's the Valley of Trouble. And why was the penalty so severe? Well, God explained why the penalty was so severe in verse 15. Look at it with me in your Bible. God said this to Joshua, The one who is caught with the things set apart must be burned along with everything he has because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. The penalty is severe because the sin is severe. God does not judge our sin in half measures. But I think there's another reason why the punishment is so severe. It is severe in order to serve as a spiritual warning to those in the story, as well as to us who read the story. When we observe the events in the Valley of Achor, we witness the consequences of rejecting God. We don't have to wonder how terrible His wrath is. We are witnessing the terrifying wrath of God on sin here in this story. That's why that pile of rocks was left where it was in that valley, so that as future generations walked by, the story would again be told of God's wrath as a warning to those generations to not walk in the way of Achan. Back in chapter 4, we had another pile of stones. Do you remember those? These stones of remembrance that were taken from the bed of the Jordan River as Israel crossed. Those stones were stacked into an altar, and it's a storytelling place to tell the story of God's mighty act on behalf of His people. And here in chapter 7, we have more stones of remembrance, but this time they tell the story of God's wrath. And God's people must visit both of those monuments. We have to go to the stones of remembrance of Joshua 4 to see the mighty power of God. And then we have to sit with the stones in the valley of Achor and be reminded of the horrors of His wrath on sin. Throughout the Bible, God's wrath on sin is never anything less than terrifying. Every place we see God's wrath displayed, it's shocking. The worldwide flood of Genesis 6 to 9, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, the defeat of the Egyptians in Exodus 15, likewise God's judgment on His people and their sin is also terrifying. The Assyrian destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 2 Kings 10 or the Babylonian destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah in 2 Kings 24. And then we fast forward to the life of Jesus. And we see Jesus' anger unleashed at the hard-heartedness of religious leaders in Mark chapter 3. And His anger unleashed at the money changers in the temple in John chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus warned of judgment worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And then if we were to look at that future to come, God's wrath is revealed at the second coming of Jesus in Revelation 19 as well as at the great white throne of judgment where unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. 
Look, God's full and final wrath on sinners is what the Bible calls hell. It's God's eternal wrath and fury as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. The Lord Jesus will be revealed with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. Why do we struggle with believing the severity of God's judgment on sin? We struggle because sin doesn't bother us the way it bothers God. These scenes of judgment are confusing to us. We don't understand what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 5 that we should go to any extreme to avoid sin. And we struggle to believe God's wrath because we've made God into our own image. We've made him a God who loves so much that he would never condemn his creation. However, the God of Joshua 7... The God of the Bible will judge all rebellion with a final terrifying wrath. God's wrath is just. God's wrath is terrifying. And finally, God's wrath is satisfied. Remember our destination today? Our destination is hope. And we're getting there now. We've been through the valley of trouble. It's time for us to see some hope because there's a bigger story at play than is just displayed here in Joshua chapter 7. We're given a clue to this bigger story whenever we hear Achan's family line described to us. Three different times in this passage, we're told that Achan is the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah. Verse 1 opens that way. Who is Achan? He's the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah. So who was Zerah? That name clues us in to this bigger story that's going on. Well, once upon a time in Genesis chapter 38, there was a woman named Tamar. And Tamar wanted to be the one to give birth to the child who would carry on God's covenant with this people. She was in a really desperate situation. And so she disguised herself like a prostitute. Uh, She wooed Judah, the promise carrier, and she was impregnated by him. And she gave birth to twins. During Tamar's delivery of her twins, one twin Uh, stuck his arm out, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it around the baby's wrist, and then that arm retracted, and the other baby was delivered in full first. That first fully delivered baby was named Perez. The baby with the red thread around his wrist was named Zerah, this Zerah, the Zerah of Joshua 7. Since his arm emerged first, Zerah was considered to be the firstborn of Tamar and Judah. Now we can imagine what we would think at this point is that God's promise of a king for Israel would go through this lineage from Judah to Zerah. And where next from Zerah? To Zabdi, and then to Carmi, and then to Achan, that's what we would think, is that this lineage would go all the way down through Achan, but it didn't, right? In Joshua chapter 7, this 
lineage died with Achan. But it wasn't the end of God's promise to bless all nations on earth through Israel. You see, there's another scarlet cord in our story. And who does that scarlet cord belong to? It belongs to Rahab, whom we met in Joshua chapter 2. So let's compare, hang with me, let's compare the scarlet cord of Genesis 38 with the scarlet cord of Rahab in Joshua 2. In Genesis 38, we have Tamar who dresses like a prostitute. In Joshua 2, we have Rahab who is a prostitute. In Genesis 38, Tamar delivered two babies. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab uh, delivered two spies from destruction. In Genesis 38, Zerah's scarlet thread eventually leads to death. But in Joshua chapter 2, the spy's scarlet cord leads to life. Do you remember Joshua 2? They gave Rahab this scarlet cord. Put this in the window of your home. And on the day of destruction, everyone in your home will be covered. They'll be delivered. They'll be rescued from that destruction. Achan, the Israelite, whose flesh was cut but his heart was not, was cut out of God's covenant. But Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who professed faith in Israel's God, was grafted in. Achan, a disbelieving Israelite, acted faithlessly and as a result was destroyed. But Rahab, a believing Canaanite, acted faithfully and as a result was delivered. Achan met the same judgment as the Canaanites, but Rahab received the same reward as the Israelites. Achan's lineage died in the valley of Achor, but Rahab's lineage continued. And who is the descendant of Rahab who transformed the valley of trouble into the valley of hope? It's Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, you won't find Achan's name, but you'll find Rahab. This is where our hope comes in. The destruction in the valley of Achor gives us hope that there is salvation yet to come from this wrath. And it is Rahab's scarlet cord that leads us all the way to the cross. The Bible tells us that Jesus was fully man and fully God and that he died on a Roman cross as our substitute. Was it just? Was it fair that Jesus died for our sins? Well, Jesus hung on that cross as an innocent man and as the perfectly righteous God. And if we were outraged at God's wrath on guilty Achan, how much more should you be outraged at the death of the innocent Holy Christ on your behalf? If, if you were to say Achan's death was unjust, how much more unjust is Christ's death? But God's wrath at the cross was indeed just because it was a judgment on sin endured by Christ on your behalf. And was that judgment terrifying? Jesus told his disciples, you cannot drink this cup. It was a terror that only the God-man could endure. The Father's wrath poured out at the cross was terrifying in its intensity. It was terrifying in its totality. And after God's just and terrifying wrath was poured out completely, his wrath was satisfied. And now sinners have the perfect hope of eternal life through Jesus who died and rose again. 
Just a little bit ago, I quoted to you the first half of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But you have to hear the last half of that verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The valley of trouble becomes the gateway of hope through faith in Jesus who satisfied God's wrath for you. So what is God's wrath like? God's wrath is just, and God's wrath is terrifying, and God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus Christ. Long after Rahab, but long before Jesus, was the prophet Hosea. And when he talked about God's restoration work, God's saving work of his people, he prophesied of a day when the valley of Achor would be the gateway of hope. Hosea 2.15. And that's what happened when Jesus came. What do we do with Joshua 7? We run to the gateway of hope. We run to Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we must be ruthless in our battle against our own sin. We must be ruthless with our greed and our envy, with our complacency and our self-indulgence, with our deceit and our disobedience. The Lord Jesus paid the price through his death on the cross, and God has buried our sins in the depth of the sea. So let's be done with them and get rid of them and not bury them in our tents, so to speak, any longer. See what a great price Christ paid for your salvation. If we read Joshua 7 and I just say, don't sin anymore because bad things are going to happen, you have no power. You can't do it. But when you run through the gateway of hope, when you run through Christ, when you put your hope and your trust in Him, you have strength to break free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin and the presence of sin in your life. So brothers and sisters, set your eyes on Christ and battle your sin in the power and strength He gives. And I wonder if there's anyone else in here not a follower of Jesus you recognize you don't have Christ. What does this story say to you? Well, let the stones of Joshua 7 speak the truth about yourself. You are a sinner deserving of God's wrath because of your rebellion against Him. But there is hope for you. Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus died in your place so you don't have to suffer the destruction of Achan. Salvation doesn't depend on your moral merit. If it did, then you would deserve to be under a pile of stones in Achor. But God in His rich mercy has made another way for you. And when you turn to Jesus in faith, you'll find the true grace of God in everlasting life. So let us run from the valley of Achor into the gateway of hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage uh, and its difficulty because it makes us look at things we don't like to look at. We don't like to think of your wrath. We don't like to think of your judgment. And we don't like to think of our sin. And it is hard at times to think of the cross and the great price that was paid for us. To know that Christ, the creator, 
the one and only Lamb of God, hung on that cross for my lies and my deception and my greed and my arrogance and my coveting and my lust and my every sin. I can barely handle that truth. But thank you for so great a love as this and for the hope that is ours, even in the Valley of Achor. Father, this morning, would you bring us to a place of repentance from our sin? I'm grateful that when we confess, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you that for those in here that hear the warning of wrath, and they understand the depths of their sin, but their hearts are made alive to the hope that's in Christ, that you'll give them eternal life today. Lord, bring faith to them. Awaken that faith now. Draw them to you, that they would put their hope in Christ and have everlasting life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.